Hey, this morning, we're going to begin in, in John's gospel in just a moment, chapter 3, uh, a very familiar verse for you. Um, but before we do that, really want to just let you know, we're going to walk through a number of scriptures today. So it's going to go relatively quick. Um, this is not my desire. I like to read big, big chunks all at one time and really kind of contextually work through those. And for, uh, for the purpose of today, it, we're going to have some smaller sections of scripture. And that purpose is this, if we're going to become gospel people, if that's the vision, if that's truly what we believe, our elders, our leadership, our, our pastoral staff, and our people, we believe congregationally that this is the vision that God has for this church, us, this little body, that we would be people who are marked by our identity, our identity is found in the gospel, how do we get there? How do we become those kinds of people? What does it look like for God to transform us in that way? And we would say this here, here at Double Oak, that, that we have three core values that we believe God will use to create us, to transform us into gospel people. These are the values right from the top. You've heard these weeks and weeks and weeks uh, prior to this, but to reiterate, they are that we would believe in the gospel, so that we'd believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, that we would live in the gospel, meaning we would live in the reality, the implications, what has happened as a result of who we are now corporately because of what Jesus has done. So believing in the gospel, living in the gospel and then finally, living out the gospel, that we would live out the gospel, that our lives would put on display the good news of what Jesus has done, and that would cause us to proclaim that good news to the world around us, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our coworkers, to our families, people we exist in community with, and the world at large around us. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, our values, believing in, living in, and living out the gospel. So we're going to start in this way and really break down and walk through each one. What do each of these three things mean? Number one, believe in. What does it mean to believe in the gospel? I think one of the most challenging things about language at times is, is we take a word and we think a word means exactly what we think it means from a framework that we have from our life and our experiences and places that we've been. So some of us might say to believe something might just mean to be accept something, to just ultimately just take it in in such a way where we can kind of mentally assent to it, where we can say, I recognize that as true. But more than that, the scriptures time and time again point to the recognition of, of what belief in the gospel is as something deeper. And I would summarize it in this way, that belief in the gospel is to trust in, to repent and to trust in the sufficient work of Christ's death and resurrection for our salvation. And the reconciliation that we have with God, this relationship with him that's restored, is only a result of His grace working in us through faith. So we're going to look at a couple of scriptures uh, that describe this. John chapter 3, verse 16, says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The word of the Lord to which we say, Thanks be to God. Here's the picture, and I think it's really important for us to, to, to break this down and see this. Ultimately, what has happened, the gospel, is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And look at the action that takes place. God gives us His only Son. He does this as a result of the love that He has for this world that is in rebellion against Him. 
And the purpose, the end, would be that they could experience this eternal life. And there's a component of this in which you and I get to take part. What's the path to get there to this place where you experience the life that comes from this God who is gracious and giving his son? And it's this, it's that we believe. That whoever believes, that is the call and that is the responsibility for us to trust in, to yield our lives, our very selves to who God is and what he's done for us in his son Jesus. Now look into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and you can see this component of the fact that this is grace and faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. This is the beautiful essence of the gospel is that we do not earn this. We do not go out and get this. We do not reclaim this, retake this, find this, adapt and and recover in such a way that now we messed up some stuff, but we're going to get back into right relationship with God on our own. No, that's not possible. But instead, we're given this gift of grace, this unmerited favor ultimately getting everything when we deserve nothing. Everything when we deserve nothing. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that God works in us, gives us this grace, and then causes us, uh, enables us to trust in him, to have faith, to rest upon the finished work of what Jesus has done, not what we've done, so that none of us may boast. It's not through what we do. And so you and I get the brilliant opportunity to experience. This is the beauty of the gospel. We get to stop trying to save ourselves. We get to stop trying to save ourselves. We get to embrace the reality that God has done it for us in Christ. And we can remove, ultimately, and this is the beauty, we remove the focus off of ourselves and on to God and what He has done. Think about what we're a part of in this. Nothing. God is at work in us. He's the one doing these things to draw us to himself. Romans 10, 17 would say this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is not what we've done. Everything that we have in Christ has come from God working on our behalf through him. Keller would say it in this way, that there's two ways to read the Bible. You can read the Bible in one of two ways. It's either basically about me or it's basically about Jesus. It's ultimately about what I'm supposed to do or what Jesus has done. And brothers and sisters, it's the latter. The scriptures are about what Jesus has done. This is the... I can't... I can't describe that this is the only, words are inadequate to, to say to you, to share with you, to implore you, to see that there is nothing in the world that is like this good news. Everything else will tell you to be more, will have you running after riches that you heed, that you want, that you're after, the praise of other people affirmation, love, affection from all of these things in the world that have ultimately been twisted and perverted and have been moved away and robbed of their beauty because they're not found in Christ. 
The beauty of the gospel is this. Everything else in the world tells you to go find an identity, create an identity, make something of yourself, be somebody. And Jesus says, I am everything, and now you are in me. Everything that is mine is now yours. This is the beauty of the gospel. So this is what it means to believe in the gospel. It means to repent and trust in what Christ has done, to turn away from our sin. Instead of continuing to rebel against God and his order and his glory, we yield to him. We believe in what Jesus has done for us. We embrace the love with which he's loved us, and we turn and we love him. All right, what's the result of believing in the gospel? This is the implication. What happens when we repent and believe? This is it. We're saved. We're now redeemed. We now have a relationship, a right relationship with God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, every gospel, everything you see in the scriptures all points to this, that as we trust in, as we believe in, as we repent of our sin and we come to Christ, yielding to him for all things, we are saved. John's gospel says it in this way in chapter 1. John chapter 1, you remember... It starts with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John is talking about the pre-existent Christ. And he's saying, when you believe in Him, when you trust in Him, we get this story, this picture that everything was made through Him, that in Him was light and life, that nothing was made apart from Him, that Jesus truly is a part of everything. Everything is from Him and in Him and to Him. And there's this story of these people that John would talk about, of people who just ultimately rejected him. And then he says this in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, and in a very particular way he describes what that looks like, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's the word of the Lord to which we say, Thanks be to God. No longer regarded as flesh, but born as people of God. This is the beauty. This, this is not a metaphor. This is not something that sounds poetic and is rich and is in a storybook. This is reality. If you have trusted in Christ, this is who you are. He gave you the right authority. You are a child of God. That's who you are. That is your reality. So this is beyond the mere flesh and blood that we kind of identify with each other with, right? We just look at people as people, as, as, these, as these mortal, fragile things. No. There is no mortality for you. You've trusted in Christ, believer. Your life is hidden with God in him, and this is your identity. You are a child of God. You are made new. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17, and you'll see this. The crux of this is found in 17, but you got to see where this comes from and Paul's direction, his writing, and why has he concluded these things that people are new? Look into verse 14 and see this. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's the incredible thing that we see in this passage. As Paul writes to these believers, he helps them understand with great detail that they are made new. They are not people who are, who are, who are being challenged to get better. He is not saying, I'm convinced and I'm compelled, that I'm controlled with this reality in which we got to do a better job. We got to grow. We can take some steps and we can move a little further. No, he says, one has died and therefore all have died. And now if you have trusted in Christ, believer, you are caught up into truly Jesus's death and resurrection. So much so that the old you died with him on the cross and the new you walked out of that grave in resurrection life. That is reality if we have trusted in him. Look back, into, look back up a couple of verses and you'll see this. That those who, might, or those who live rather might no longer live for themselves. This is a reality of being gospel people. This is why we believe in and trust in this and longingly would say that that what Jesus has done marks all of who I am. I no longer live for myself. Paul would write this to the church of Galatia, right? That I'm crucified with Christ. He describes it in this reality that I don't live. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. Belief in, rest in, trust in, surrender to, acknowledgement of, allegiance to all that Christ has done for me. That's the result of believing in the gospel. That's how truly transformed we are. And then finally, third, surrounding what it means to believe in the gospel. What does the gospel have to do with the here and now? Because I truly believe that this is how we normally think about what it means to believe in the gospel. We regard it as a moment in which we believed in Jesus in the past, right? We talk about our salvation. How do we typically talk about it? I was saved, right? At this moment, this juncture in the past. That's how we articulate it. And quite often, even that language has led us to believe that we're at this place where it's like, okay, the gospel is like the first step. That's the beginning. Like, faith comes by the word, the word by hearing. I heard the word. I trusted in Christ. I believed the gospel. Now, what's next? What's like the next step? Because I've done that, and now I need to kind of graduate to the next level. What's the next thing that I do? And the reality is we never grow beyond the gospel at all. In fact, we're only called to go deeper into it. Paul writes to a group of people who think like this. People just like you and me. People who are wondering, what does the gospel mean for me here and now? I trusted Jesus in the past. What does it mean for me right now? This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, or verses 6 and 7 rather. And it says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is what's happening in this moment. Paul is saying, as you receive Jesus, walk in him. Just as you received him. Notice that he doesn't talk about this moment as something that stops. 
as you received him. What they're being called to in this moment, the prime directive is to walk in him, not in a new way, not in a way that's beyond what they receive, but ultimately in the same manner as these believers received Christ. So what does this mean? This means that the gospel has implications for me today. Right now, in this moment, it is not about me merely trusting Christ in the past for salvation. I'm called to trust Christ right now for all that he's done for me and to walk in that reality, to believe in the gospel right now. Because that word Paul uses, walk, it ultimately means live. It means your entire manner of life, everything that you do is in that. So how do we apply this as believers as, as, as brothers and sisters here at Double Oak Community Church, what does it mean to believe in the gospel? What does it mean to do that together? Well, it means to keep the gospel before us. we got to be people. If we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word, we have to constantly be putting the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, before us. We have to keep the words of the scriptures before us. The gospel is all of God for all of us at all times. Hear that. The gospel is all of God for all of us at all times. The good news of what he's done is not just for a moment in the past, it's for now. That's the vertical component of of relating to the gospel is we're now connected to God as we believe in the gospel. The next thing is what it means to live in the gospel, to live in the gospel. This is the horizontal aspect, what we experience with others, specifically brothers and sisters, now that we live in the reality of Christian community together, because the Christian life is not a personal one. It's really a corporate one. The Christian life It's not meant to be merely a personal life. It's a corporate life. How do we know this? Number one, we know this because God exists in community. Two examples of this very clearly. We'll look first at the Old Testament. Back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, 26. Moment of creation. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God because it is an amazing word. This is what's so incredible. I don't know about you, but I like to think about myself a lot. All right. And as a result, I would lean into this. And for so much of my early Christian life, I would say, all right, so this is what I get to do, right? I get to have dominion over fish, over sea, and over birds, and heavens, and the livestock. And this sounds like a man has a pretty cool gig here. And I would take these words at the beginning, and I would so miss the richness and the beauty of the community of the triune God, of the Godhead, of God the Father. God the Son and God the Spirit that is found here at creation. So when Paul, and and he writes in Colossians in that same book we just talked about, he's going to write to all these people about the image of the invisible, the preeminent, the preexistent, the co-eternal Jesus Christ who has not come at the incarnation in the manger. He's always been. And we see this here in the Old Testament. Let us make man in our image. Why that plural language? Because it's a profound revelation of the one true God that we worship, but the persons of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit at work in creation, the beginning of all things, co-equal, co-eternal, existing in this perfect 
loving community. In perfect, loving community. We get a picture also in the New Testament. John chapter 17, this is a high priestly prayer. These are the last words that Jesus will pray as recorded by John's gospel before he goes to the cross. And in this intimate prayer with the Father, he says this, I do not ask for these only, he's talking about his disciples and those who have come to trust in him, believe in him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This beautiful picture, perfect love and union with the Father is what Jesus prays for us. So when we believed in, we trusted in the the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, we've yielded our life to Jesus, this is the horizontal implication that not only do we have a relationship with God the Father, Christ the Son, and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, now we have relationship with each other. We have a relationship in which we don't just exist as a bunch of individuals in right relationship with God. We exist as brothers and sisters. We exist corporately as the body of Christ. That is who we are. We exist in community. Look in this passage and you see the community of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit empowering this prayer on display as Jesus prays to the Father. And he prays this profound thing that our love for one another would be perfect as his love for the Father is and the Father's love for him. That reciprocal love. This is astounding. If any scripture that we find, that are anything that Jesus prays would give us a clue as to what he longs for his people, it's this, that we would have unity together. And you can see all the purpose in it. That the world might know that Jesus came. That the world, that people outside would know their love. But where does it come from? From people Loving one another. They will know we are Christians by our love. This is what it looks like. We're called to live in the reality of the gospel and exist in community together. It's a special thing week after week to be able to gather like this. And I mean, I I think it's abundantly clear that the last few years have taught us that this is something that we need. We need to be together. And God has commanded us and called us to be together. We look into Hebrews and we read a passage in verse 10 that would tell us to to not stop meeting together. That there are all these folks that are believers that are really struggling and they've given up meeting together. And he says, don't do that. Continue to meet together. And there's a deep purpose behind it. What is that purpose? To love one another and stir one another up to good deeds. To truly exist in community where we care for one another. Because this is the reality of if you believe in the gospel, you also now live in it. You have a relationship with all your brothers and sisters here who have trusted in Jesus as well. You're really, truly a part of the very family of God. As all children, we are brothers and sisters together. And so how does that flesh out? What does that look like? How do, how do I apply that in my life? What does that mean? Because in so many ways, I think we all have a tendency to essentially walk in here in an individual manner or with our own family, and we kind of sit in our own individual seat. 
and we pray about our own individual things, and then we walk back out into our own individual lives. But the beauty of the gospel is that there's so much more than that. There's an opportunity to be connected to rich, life-giving gospel community. And for us at, at Double Oak Community Church in Chelsea, here's what it looks like. We call it community groups. And we want people, you're going to hear about this throughout the fall and consistently, and you're going to have conversations, and I'm going to ask you, like I'm going to look you in the eye, and I'm going to ask you, not because I think you need to be on another list. I don't think you need another email or another text or another phone call. I'm not trying to put you in a club. We get no, like there's no reward. There's no, like we don't, we're not a part of a convention, so we don't get any like attaboys for big numbers and this kind of stuff. We, we want you to be connected to other believers. So as a result, we want you to be plugged into a community group. To be connected to other people so that the Christian life is one where you can exist in and reflect what Jesus really desires. Deep unity with one another because of what he's done. So that's what it looks like to live in the reality of the gospel. Man, I would encourage you to, after the service, maybe you want to go to Connection Point. Maybe you want to fill out the card that's in the seat back in the front and say, look, I just I need community. I want, to, I want to find some people that I can experience community with, and it will be not only our job, it will be more than that, it will be our joy to help you connect with people so that you can experience the implication of living in gospel reality with other believers. Finally, to live out the gospel. This final value, we, we believe in the gospel, we live in its reality, in community with one another, we also want to live out the gospel by putting the love of God on display for one another, but ultimately our neighbors and the world to see. We want to live out the gospel in such a way that people in our life, in the very places we go, the things that we do, wherever we exist, they recognize, they see that the gospel is the thing. The good news of what Jesus has done is the news that defines us. The thing that gives us life and joy and hope is Jesus himself, his person and work, all that he has done. So we live out the gospel three very specific ways. One is this, in serving the church. Now, there's all kinds of scriptures that we find, for 59 of them to be exact, one another's that we find in Scripture about how believers are supposed to relate to one another and what it looks like to live out the gospel in the Christian community for the world to see. This is Galatians chapter 5, and you'll remember that Paul is writing, he's talked about, he's helped this church understand that they are free. It's for freedom that they're free. They don't have to go do a number of things to earn God's favor. Instead, God has given them grace. That's his unmerited favor. Everything that the benefit that they have, the freedom they can enjoy is because of what Christ has done. And he talks about the purpose of this freedom. Okay, so the freedom is experiencing the life that comes in Jesus. And then he says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. He reminds them, he says this, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What an incredible opportunity we have to serve one another, to care for one another. Romans 12, 10 would say it in this way, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, show hospitality. 
And then ultimately, more than anything, more than any encouragement, more than Paul can implore, this is what Jesus says in John 15, chapter 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And here's what you heard. Jesus said we should love one another, and we can all get behind that. We're, we're big fans of that. Not great at it at times, admittedly, but we're big fans of it. We want to love one another. It's this last phrase. Jesus says, as I have loved you. That's the hard part. We're called to love one another as Jesus has loved. One who would say of himself, Jesus would say, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to offer his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. So what it looks like is us laying down our life for our friends in the most practical ways to serve one another, to care for one another, to show hospitality. And here's the opportunity and the reality that we have for us here is that, look, I grew up in a world where I walked into church and it was like, I think these guys got it taken care of. Like you walk in and it happens. And there are a number of people every week that are serving in various ways so that the gospel gets to be proclaimed not only to adults, but to students and to children and to preschoolers and people all over this campus. It's an amazing thing. We only get to experience that as we serve one another. So there's opportunities everywhere. This morning, you were greeted by people as you came in. And look, here's the thing. I think greeting people is a good thing to do. I like to be acknowledged when I go into places, right? It's affirming. It's helpful. At least people know that I'm there. So if I have something or I, need, or I have a question or whatever, they can help me, right? But more than that, we don't have greeters here to just be nice and say, yes, this place exists. You can step inside too. It's more than that. You know what our greeters do? You know what the theology of our greeters is? This is the reality that they're trying to offer smiles and handshakes and hugs and words of encouragement and questions about who people are, not just so that people will like us, that you'll want to come back here. You know why they're doing that? Because people are created in the image of God. We just read about it. People are created in God's image. This is a giant act of service to help treat people like, you know what? You matter because you're made in God's image. God created you. So I want to intentionally look you in the eye and see how you're doing and say hey to you and check on you and ask if you have any needs. I mean, how can we love you? How can we care for you? And there are tons of opportunities that exist like that where we all get to be a part of serving one another here in the church. Here's the other thing. We have the opportunity to also serve outside the church by serving the world. This is Psalm 105.1. It says this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God for this beautiful word that we get to hear and we get to see that this is, this is the role, the opportunity that we have. This clear command to, to make known to others what Christ has done for us, to tell other people about what Jesus has done. Jesus would say it this way. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he would say this. You're, you're the light of the world. You're to let your light shine before others so that they can see your good works and ultimately do this. Glorify the Father who is in heaven. 
Romans 10.14 would say this, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? So how can they call on one in whom they haven't believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are we to believe in the God of all creation that has loved us and given himself for us in his son by the power of his spirit if we have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The good news of the gospel came to you. I love Paul's language because it's so true. When he writes in Colossians, just as you've received Christ, when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, like we looked at last week, that he received the gospel, that what he's doing, what he's telling the Corinthian church of first importance, he received that, and he's passing that on to them. Here's the reality. The gospel came to you. You received it. The gospel came to you on its way to someone else. We get the opportunity to live out the gospel by sharing the good news with others. Not just by serving one another here, but outside the world. What does that look like here? Man, it looks like we tell the truth of who we are by sharing our story with one another. And encouraging one another to share our story with people that are in our neighborhood, that are in our community. And to be a part of local and national and international missional opportunities. You're going to hear so much more about those coming up. But that's what that looks like. Finally, third... Another way to live out the gospel in our context is to give to the church and to those in need. And anytime we talk about giving, I think that like that can be sticky. It can feel really strange. Has anybody ever had an uncomfortable and perhaps unhelpful experience in a church where we've talked about or you've experienced talking about giving? It's been good for you guys, it looks like. All right. Here's the thing. There's a place, there's an origin, there's a heart from which giving comes, and it's God himself as gracious giver. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul is really walking through in this passage, in, in, in chapters 8 and chapter 9, he's talking to the Corinthian church about a promise they've made about their desire to go give money to these other churches in, in Macedonia and all these different places, all right? And at the crux of it, he tells them, and offers them a theology for giving. Why would, we, why would we give? Do we give because it's tradition? Do we give because it's something that we have to do or he's going to be really mad at us? And so I want to stay in his good graces and therefore I want to give. This is, this is why we give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. Thanks be to God for this word. That everything that I have is a result of what Jesus Christ has given. And that perspective, that reality shift for me to understand that, man, when I give to ministry, when I give to those in need, I'm glorifying the Lord. I'm seeking to be a reflection of what Christ has done for me. Recognizing that even the things that I hold, the things that I have, that these things are not mine. They've been entrusted to me. Everything that we have is ultimately his. We know that. This is what 1 John chapter 3 says. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Acts chapter 2. 
the Holy Spirit comes upon believers. The church is formed, and this is what's happening. All who believe were together. They had all things in common. They're selling their possessions, their belongings, and they're distributing the proceeds to anybody who has a need. And then Paul, as he wraps up that passage in 2 Corinthians, says this powerful, incredible thing. This is what he says. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And I would argue that this is for the, for the whole canon of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the picture we get for a theology of giving is that we should give graciously as God has given graciously. Um, if you want to find me afterwards or, or talk more about kind of numbers or tithe or numeric stuff, we could do that. You can find me later. But here's what I would uh, posit to you, and here's what I would say. I believe truly we can theologically look at the scriptures, and I think a number of us grew up in traditions where we thought that what we were supposed to give was 10% of what we earned, right? And that, that some people even would say, well, you've got to give 10% of gross, not 10% of net, Here's the reality. That rule is falling way short of even what's commanded in the Old Testament. A tithe would have been much more in the neighborhood of like 22.5%. All right? And I don't see everybody jumping out of their chair to write that check today. Okay? So one, there's some historical struggles that we have with that tradition. The spirit of the tradition, though, is that we would give because all of these things have been given to us by God. So here's what, what I would say Paul is arguing for in the New Testament is that God loves gracious givers, and we're to live out the gospel by giving because Christ has given everything to us. So I truly don't believe the scripture are telling you there's a number and you got to give that number. That may be a good barometer. That may be healthy for you and your family and what you, where you feel like God is calling you to give. But ultimately, Paul says this. He says, don't give begrudgingly. Don't give if you don't want to give. And he also says, don't give under compulsion. Don't give because you're being made to feel like you should give. You know why you should give? Because Christ became poor so that you could be rich. So that you could have everything. Man, as we live out the gospel, not only do we want to serve in the church, not only do we want to serve outside our neighbors, outside the church, but we also want to give. And look, I'll tell you this as we close. Every week we walk into this beautiful, amazing building that God has so richly blessed us with. And even in the past few months, as we've walked through and talking through who we are as a church and what God's calling us to do as one church on two campuses and moving toward independence, I think sometimes we fail to realize that we got to take ownership of the place in which we worship. That God has not just given us something that we should do. We get, there's a could here. I get the obligation, or I get the opportunity, rather, to give in such a way that people can experience the gospel in the way that I have. That my life's been changed by the gospel. My life's been changed by this gospel community. And therefore, because God has caused me to believe in the gospel and live in its reality, and I see all those benefits, man, I want to give. So every week, we get the opportunity to give. And I know that's something that God is doing in us right now and stirring us and causing us to grow as a people who long to give even more and more. So not that we can have more stuff, not that we can do more things, but that the gospel would be heard more clearly to more people. That's our desire. So this morning, um, our worship team is going to come and we're going to close. In all of these things, the thread that ties gospel belief, gospel life, believing in the gospel, living in its reality and living it out, 
is that all of these things are done and powered through God the Father working through the person and work of Jesus Christ, His Son, and the power of the Spirit. This is not what we do. We don't make ourselves be people who are right with God. He is the one who draws us to Himself. So this is the invitation, this is the opportunity this morning. Could we be people that believe in the gospel, that trust in what Jesus has done? Could we be people that live in its reality, that experience real community together? Could we go find a community group? Can we say, can we just write on a card and take two seconds? doesn't matter if you want to do it right now or in this song or right after the service. Could you just say, look, man, I do. I want to be connected. I need that. I'm willing, I'm, I'm willing to step out on a limb here. There's people here that love you, that, that want to experience gospel life with you. And finally, could we be people that rise to the occasion, not to meet some sort of numeric goal, but ultimately just say, I want to live a life where I live out the gospel because I'm rich because of what Christ has done for me. And I can't help but minister to others because God has ministered to me through them. Think about those things, and if you want to respond, if the Spirit's working, if you're beginning to believe the gospel, you have questions, you want to talk about this church, who we are, any of those kind of things, myself, our pastor, some of our pastors, elders will be here after the service to receive you. But let's stand in this moment, and let's sing this beautiful truth and respond to what Christ has done on our behalf. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, would you make us gospel people, people who rest in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name.